You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 31st of January 2023 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up... I dreamed of 747s over geometric It was designed to meet the demands of mass travel, now almost 54 years since its first test flight. The last Boeing 747 to be produced is delivered. We'll be in Seattle for the rollout. Also ahead, what can the US Special Representative in Afghanistan get done during trips to Switzerland, Germany and Pakistan? We'll look at the proactive moves by the new President of the Czech Republic just days after his election. Plus the papers and a reason why we're all buying books again. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. The IMF has warned that out of the G7 nations, the UK's economy will be the only one to shrink in 2023. The US President Joe Biden says he won't send F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine. And Brazil's former President Jair Bolsonaro has applied for a six-month US tourist visa. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on these stories. But first... Good evening. This is your pilot, Prince, speaking. You are flying aboard the Seduction 747. We set the tone there for a very special day because the architect Norman Foster was once asked what his favourite building is. His reply wasn't a building at all. It was a Boeing 747, the jumbo jet, known as the Queen of the Skies. It revolutionised air travel when it made its commercial debut in 1970, allowing us to go farther and faster than ever before. Well, after five decades and more than 1,500 planes built, Boeing is holding a ceremony to mark the delivery of the last 747 it will ever build. And Chris Lord, Monocle's US editor, joins us from Seattle now, 30 minutes from the Boeing factory. Uh, A very good Good morning to you, Chris, or good evening, I should say. Hi, good morning to you, Emma. So just tell us that this is an absolutely beautiful plane and a very big day for Boeing. It is a beautiful plane. So let's talk about that 747 because you just played that amazing Prince track there, um, which reminds you, first of all, that more than any other aircraft ever, that plane, the 747, is so part of our collective culture. It was the plane that the Beatles first landed in America in. It was the plane that almost everybody who traveled in their youth will have been on a 747 doing any long haul flight. That was the workhorse of the aviation industry. And it has been since, as you say, 1970, when it was first delivered for Pan Am. It was big, huge aircraft, roomy, with passenger experience and comfort hardwired into its design so after 1573 of them the last one will roll off and be delivered uh, on tuesday uh, here in washington state at the everett factory the boeing factory the very first place that it was ever built um and you know the 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 original sort of designer if you like of the, of the very first designer for the 747 joe sutter unfortunately isn't with us anymore but many of those original crew who were involved in the creation of this 
iconic piece of engineering and design uh, will be there at Everett uh, on Tuesday. I will be there. There's lots of press here. It's a big day in the history of aviation, yes, but also I think it's a big day in the history of of mobility, of travel, of how that went from being the, something that was the reserve of those who could pay lots and lots of money to travel to being actually a thing that the masses could enjoy, a middle-class thing to travel around the world and not just domestically, but long-haul flights. And you could do it in relative comfort. And I think it's it's going to be an inspiring day. I've all just been meeting with various people from Boeing and also from some of the carriers like Lufthansa who continue to fly uh, later developments of the 747. Everybody has an, a story with this with this plane. And I think anyone who's listening to this can also probably think they can all picture themselves at some point in their lives sat on this jet. And on Wednesday, it will fly into the sunset, the last one to be built. The, the interesting thing is, though, that the Queen of the Skies occupied an incredibly important place for five decades in aviation. But now, I mean, you mentioned Lufthansa. I think there are only 44 passengers that uh, Passenger versions, I should say, of the 747 still in service. More of half, more than half of those are flown by Lufthansa. There is a real sense that it no longer occupies a useful place in the modern aviation. Its scale still makes it very, very useful for cargo flights, and that's probably what we will continue to see. And that unmistakable sound of the of the 747, we will hear those planes turn skies as cargo aircraft. And in fact, the one that's going to be delivered on Tuesday will go to Atlas Air. Who will who are a cargo carrier, but the 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 issue really with the seven four seven is that despite its later variations, the fuel efficiency because of that scale and that heft that it has, it just isn't there. And Boeing and the various carriers that still work with them have have found ways to get around that. But now, really, I think there are new um, new aircraft coming, not least from Boeing. The triple seven X is still in development, which is. Uh, similar in scale to the 747, but has a twin engine, much more fuel efficient, uh, and, and but yet can still go those distances. And that's probably going to be the workhorse of the future here, I would imagine, for many carriers who are looking to maybe replace their 747s or, or similar or their A380s or whatever. That's going to be a very important jet, I would say. I think that to, to your point about that it's not been able to keep up, I think that the reality is that it's it has kept up for a very long time. I just think that now that that scale and in our age where we are thinking more and more about efficiencies, uh, carriers are looking but, but are looking to the future. But make no mistake, as you say, Lufthansa and others continue to fly 747s. Lufthansa itself has been very involved in helping to innovate on the 747 and come up with some of those new variations for its needs. Uh, but I think that there are increasingly... Uh, new challenges to that long-haul workhorse coming down the track. There are, aren't they? Because it's not long since Airbus decided that it was going to stop producing the A380, the mm. other enormous workhorse of the sky. Um, people either buying them second-hand, which is what they're still doing with the 747 as well, but it, it, how much have we changed the way that we use our aircraft that you know, many people think that actually the the goal to spend 24 hours on a plane isn't actually what we really want to do and enormous aeroplanes and, and, and passenger aeroplanes at least during covid became something that just seemed quite obsolete so i think one of the big changes in our in the last 30 years is that what we used to call spoken spoken wheel style travel which means that you fly on a very large plane in very large numbers to a hub air, air, airport. So, you know, 
the, your, your Heathrow's and your Frankfurt's and, and what have you. Uh, and then from there, you then take connecting smaller flights uh, on smaller planes rather to to those next onward destinations. That was in a way the model of the long haul as it was as it was always known. What's happened in recent years is planes have got smaller and in the search for more fuel efficiency, a lot more direct routes that never really existed before have come into front route maps. And that obviously has been a big challenge in part to, uh, you know, big expensive aircraft, like you say, like the A380, which just, you know, so few of them really were, were made relative to something like the 747, given how much money went into its design by Airbus. Uh, and, and actually, the, you know, the main customer for them really was the Gulf Airlines, who were probably really ultimately thinking that they were going to be doing transatlantic flights and then flights down to to uh, to the to down under to Australia and to New Zealand and so on, and therefore it kind of made sense. But for a, but I think that spoken wheel style of of travel, in a way, like you say, with COVID, that was a little bit that that's been a little bit disrupted. But also, it's, it's now a question I think increasingly about those efficiencies because that model in one way could be could if there was a much more efficient aircraft fuel efficient aircraft came in as we're talking about with the triple seven x that spoken wheel becomes a lot more realistic when getting more people to one space becomes a lot easier when you've got bigger aircraft that are fuel efficient again i think it's i think we are in as we are in a changing moment here but that fundamental shift from how we travel and more lighter smaller aircraft doing direct routes that's been a major major shift and and i think I think Boeing and others are very, very conscious of that as they as they look to roll out yet another very, very big jet that's designed for that mass travel long haul workhorse, basically. It's not going to be the end of the 747 in terms of when we look up into the skies. No. It's going to be around for a good 30 years still, isn't it? Yeah, it is, absolutely. And and these planes still fly very, very well. And, and you know, Lufthansa continues to fly them as passenger jets, but also the cargo industry really relies on them because of their scale and in a way it's funny because it's a, it's a, it's actually coming back to some of the origins of the 747 because when it was first designed by Joe Susser and his crew even though you know passenger experience was was paramount you know they had those double decks because they did ultimately think at the time well when this kind of goes out of being uh, used but as a passenger jet when something else comes along that maybe trumps this and, and is the next generation, then of course these things can be around and be used as cargo and you can have double decks, which means you can load it all full of freight and, and that makes more sense. Of course, that wasn't how things panned out. You know, 1,500 you know, of these things later, they're still flying in the air as passenger jets because they do still represent a, couple, a few things, which is, you know, you can get a lot of people on them and you can get a lot of people on them in relative comfort because you have big roomy spaces. You've got that iconic double deck. You've got the hump at the top where you can put first class. All those things that were thought about, which was so in their infancy at the time when these ideas, you know, the idea of having multi-tiered travel for a start, you know, economy travel even in itself was very much in its infancy and began in many ways with the 747. So a lot of things that we just take for granted as part of the of the travel uh, experience came from this jet and therefore uh, it's while you know yes it might become a a cargo uh, carrier ultimately in the long term and the long term here i think that it lives on because it's so fundamentally shaped 
how we get around the world. Finally, I mean, we've talked about the practicalities, but going back to what I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, which is Norman's Foster, Norman Foster, mm. Norman Foster's love of the 747, and he says it has an extraordinary presence. The tail is higher than a six-story building. It's the grandeur, the scale. It's heroic. It's pure sculpture. It doesn't need to fly. When you see the 747, the industrial design is unmistakable and it is beautiful. And that is something I wonder whether we still have in our thinking of designing aircraft. Do you know, that's it's such a good point. I love that quote from Norman Foster talking about the 747, you know, as you say, pure sculpture and heroic. And he also says, you know, he, he always made that point, which is that he, he preferred not to call it. He said he didn't understand why it was called an aircraft or, or a sort of, you know, as a, as a vehicle, if you like, to be thought of as that. He called it architecture, a piece of architecture. And in fact, in the piece that you referred to where he makes those lines, he says, you know, we, that, we still have a lot to learn from that, as he puts in quotes, building the, the 747 as a piece of architecture. And I think that is very important because if we come back to the origins of where it came, where, how it came to be, Joe Sutter and his crew who built the 747, they put passenger experience and comfort and premium experience really at the forefront of the design that was what it was all about and in fact boeing did a huge amounts of um, customer surveys at the time to speak to people to understand what they wanted out of their travel experience how they wanted an aircraft to feel when you were on it and what it was like to fly and i think that you know we really now exist in an age where so much of travel is about uh, you know, squeezing things in, cutting, you know, cutting as fine as you can to maximize profitability and to to get as many people on the craft aircraft as possible and to get, you know, as many people flying and what have you, which I understand and it makes sense. But I think that there is a spirit in that original uh, foundational structure and, and design that it came from, which I think Norman Foster is in a way referring to in that heroicism, you know, the, the, the heroic scale that he's talking about. That idea that actually, you know, it's amazing that we fly in aircraft. It is amazing that we can fly around the world and we should do it in style and we should do it in a way that's also quite comfortable. And I think that, you know, as we look to the future of travel and these questions of what premium travel should be like or travel in itself, perhaps that's pause for thought. Chris Lord, thank you so much for joining us on the line from the United States, 30 minutes from the Boeing factory in Seattle. You're listening to Monocle 24. Time is uh, 8.14 in Prague, 7.14 here in London. Now, in one of his first acts as president-elect of the Czech Republic, Petr Pavel was to pick up the phone. On Sunday, he called the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky. Since then, he's also had a teleconference with his Taiwanese counterpart, Tsai Ing-wen. Well, to explore what uh, president-elect Pavel is intending to do, well, I'm joined from Taipei by William Yang, East Asia correspondent for Deutsche Welle, and also on the line is William Natras, who's a journalist based in Prague. Welcome to you both. Hello. Good to have you Hi. with us. So, so let's start off with you, William Natras in Prague. Uh, he's only been elected, what, three or four days, yet Petr Pavel is, is already making diplomatic waves. Yes, he is. And I think that he, he sees this as his uh, kind of personal mandate. He sees this as the thing which people elected him to do, because during the election campaign, he's uh, made no bones about the fact that he believes the Czech Republic should be kind of strong on the international stage, should be pushing what they call in the government the legacy of Václav Havel, which is um, taking a proactive stance for 
a kind of liberal democracy around the world and kind of leading this European and American drive to promote these uh, values. And of course, that involves attitudes towards the war in Ukraine, and it also involves uh, Taiwan. And uh, the president-elect Pavel, he feels that he's been elected to kind of push the government even further, perhaps, in these in this kind of foreign policy priority. So, um, turning to you now, William <coughs> Yang, um, in Taipei, just explain to us the logistics of this. Who, who picked up the phone to whom, and what did they talk about? So, I believe uh, the call was uh, initiated by the Czech side and Tsai uh, <clears throat> Ing-wen and uh, Pavel had the call at around 6 p.m. last night. And uh, essentially what they talked about is uh, the mutual respect and the commitment to democracy, freedom and human rights. And at the same time, uh, they uh, agreed to continue the push for deepening ties on multiple fronts, including investment, trade, education, technological exchanges, especially with Taiwan's cutting edge uh, advantage in semiconductor manufacturing. And that's one of the key area where Taiwan has really leveraged in its deep uh, efforts to deepen ties with countries in Central and Eastern Europe. And Czech Republic definitely is at the front line of this uh, effort. And we have already seen uh, previously uh, the other top Czech officials and politicians coming and visiting Taiwan and having talks and also hosting Taiwan's uh, Foreign Minister Joseph Wu. So this call definitely is a one step further, especially with the new government coming in and uh, with the message basically being sent very clearly that he is going to be a lot more pro-West and also pro-democracy and uh, be more skeptical about China and Russia and autocratic countries around the world. One of the things um, within Naturist that Tsai said was that the people of Taiwan and the Czech Republic enjoy deep ties, sharing the values of freedom, democracy and human rights. Um, it's an unusual step insofar as, am I right in thinking that there aren't any formal ties between Taiwan and the Czech Republic? Uh, yes, there are no formal diplomatic ties in the same way that there is a uh, you know, this barrier on formal diplomatic ties with most Western countries. But the Czech Republic is is one of the, I would say, one of the more proactive uh, countries in, in promoting these kind of uh, other ties. They're not unofficial ties, they're just other ties in terms of there's an economic and cultural office here in Prague. Uh, as as William said, the um, various Czech officials, the head of the Czech Senate visited Taiwan in 2020, and the, Prague's sister city is Taipei. So there are these, uh, and there's various uh, levels of cooperation in business, uh, economy, culture, and so on. So there's this block on the, there's this still this uh, obviously block on diplomatic, official diplomatic relations, but uh, the Czech Republic is very much along with countries like Lithuania and the Baltic states pushing these uh, other levels of cooperation. Just tell us a little bit more about um, how much of a bolster William Yang um, such clear and open and, and loud connections that we're getting from the Czech Republic are when China is doing everything it can to make the rest of the world sever ties. Right. I think, uh, as we know for the record, this is the second world leader that Taiwan had direct uh, phone call with uh, since uh, in 2020. We knew that the former U.S. President Joe, uh, Donald Trump called uh 
2016, called a time when soon after he was elected. And then, uh, so I think uh, in this opinion, and also one thing that Pavel said during leading up to the election that was really interesting and uh, deserves a lot more attention is the fact that he said that while the Czech Republic is going to adhere to the one China policy that Beijing has been imposing on uh almost every country around the world to not recognize Taiwan. He mentioned that uh, the Czech Republic will also consider to have a special arrangement of this some kind of uh, ties with Taiwan, which uh, I think hints that he is aiming and he's determined to elevate uh, exchanges and elevate uh, the uh, kind of uh, collaborations with Taiwan and potentially explore uncharted territory that previous Czech leaders have not tried to uh, explore. And I think uh, that is essentially going to have, uh, I think, uh, raise a lot of concerns in Beijing just because of the fact that we've seen over the last few years inside the Czech Republic, it seems like the political landscape and the atmosphere is shifting away from the interest of Beijing after the uh, previous president who is being viewed as pro-Beijing, uh, having already created some scandals with some of the uh, investment deals uh, that he potentially uh, negotiated and promoted with uh, China and that never fulfilled. And that really led to a lot of the China skeptic uh, politicians being elected and support, getting a lot of support in the Czech Republic over the last few years. And as a result of that, William Natras, we have all eyes on uh, Prague with you have this new uh, president, Petra Pavel, a retired general, former chairman of NATO's military committee. How much is that military background going to shape um, the way that he will try to direct the Czech Republic in, in his capacity as president? It's a good question. I I think that it will... Uh, he views um, kind of geopolitical issues which are uh, at the very centre of politics everywhere now. He views those issues through the lens of his time, especially in NATO, uh, and also, as, as you say, as the head of the Czech Armed Forces. And so he's very tough against Russian... Uh, actions in Ukraine and also against Russian influence in the Czech Republic. He's referred to, during the campaign, he at one point referred to China as, I think he said it was more of a, seemed like more of a security threat than a, a kind of an economic partner. So he he very much focuses on this idea of, of national security uh, influencing uh, foreign relations. And that's even extended to him suggesting that some of the of, of the parties in the Czech Republic who, who take a kind of anti-NATO stance uh, that he would, as president, he may consider refusing to let them be ministers, for example. So he's very tough on on uh, on, on a foreign policy and a domestic policy which emphasises national security, and that, of course, is stems from his military background and the fact that he he kind of perceives that these values uh, that he stands up for are things that you need to not just kind of uh, leave to their leave to flourish on their own, but you have to actually actively protect them at home and abroad. And to have that level of support, uh, William Yang, what does this do for, for, for Taiwan? I mean, it had, to have such a loud cheerleader in within the European Union must be a great bolster. Right. I think uh, this is a very important uh, signal for Taiwan as uh, Taipei continues its push to deepen and raise its profile among the European Union. Uh, over the last few years, we've seen Taiwan shifting its focus of diplomatic efforts 
away from its traditional uh, ally of the U.S. and Japan, more and putting a lot more efforts into the European Union and the Central and Eastern Europe is definitely at the forefront of uh, Taiwan's efforts of trying to win more partners. And uh, a lot of these signs are showing that it's coming to fruition. And I think it's also interesting to look at the dynamic within the European Union that a lot of the discussion now are saying that uh, the agenda of the overall bloc seems to now been shifting a little bit away from the traditional Western Europe dominated agenda. And now the Eastern and Central European countries are now having more voices and having more agency to be able to uh, direct and also project their concerns and have some impact on the overall agenda setting all, uh, within the European Union. So with that uh, kind of trend uh, being shaped up within the European Union, I think it'll be very interesting to see how the Taiwan issue is going to be brought up and also uh, how the how Brussels is going to adopt uh, approaches towards handling issues related to Taiwan going forward. William Yang in Taipei and William Netras in Prague. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. The US Special Representative for Afghanistan, Thomas West, is on his travels this week. He's visiting Pakistan, Germany and Switzerland. The aim is to gather support and help in the face of what he said are extraordinary challenges he faces in supporting the Afghan people. Well, Lynn O'Donnell is a columnist for Foreign Policy magazine and a regular voice here at Monocle 24. Welcome back, Lynn. Good morning to you. Hi, Emma. Thanks for having me. So just explain to us a little bit about the purpose of this, of this German-Swiss-Pakistani tour. Uh, yes, a bit of a whirlwind. Um, Mr. West was in Pakistan yesterday and the headlines that I'm seeing in the Afghan press are about his discussions with Pakistani officials on uh, the way the Taliban in Afghanistan are treating women. Now has been pretty egregious and uh, their rights are being tightened all the time. Um, he will probably also have discussed the Taliban attack on a mosque at a police compound in Peshawar yesterday that's claimed the lives of more than 80 policemen and injured many, many more than that. And that's an indication of the uh, the Afghan Taliban's reach. I think the Pakistan, it's fair to say that the Pakistani state is now being threatened in the same way that the Afghan state was when it was being supported as a republic by the United States and NATO. He's also off to Germany. There are some very um, high-level, formerly high-level politicians, including the former foreign minister, Hanif Atmar, living in Germany, and they're making noises about um, 
starting up political parties and some sort of political opposition to the Taliban's presence in Afghanistan, and then to Switzerland, where um, $3.5 billion of the $9 billion of Afghanistan's foreign reserves are being administered by the Bank of International Settlements. Um, none of that money has yet been dispersed, but the fund is being uh, looked after by the American ambassador, a Swiss official, and two members of the board of the Afghan Central Bank. So there may be some discussions on what is, uh, what is to be done with that money. He said, the line is is not being very friendly to us uh, today, but we will persist a little bit as long as as long as we can, Lynn. Um, Let's move on to this idea of, you know, the gathering support, the, the shopping list that you've just mentioned. But how likely is this to actually come to fruition? It's very difficult to say, Emma, because there's a lot of rhetoric around uh, the Taliban's behaviour, but there doesn't seem to be any impact of the urging by a constant stream of um, Western officials into Kabul and Kandahar on getting them to actually reverse the policies that are keeping women in their homes, out of school, out of universities, uh, most recently out of uh, the charity sector. And these um, policies it's being impressed upon the Taliban over and over if what we are reading in the media and from um, UN officials is to be believed. Um, but it doesn't make any impact. In fact, last week, senior um, UN officials and the uh, heads of charities like Save the Children went into Afghanistan, met with the Taliban and said, if women are not allowed to work with charities and deliver aid to women, then what you're essentially doing is cutting women out of the delivery and out of receiving aid that will keep them alive. And then they came out of these meetings and said, oh, things are going to get better. The Taliban say they're reviewing the bans. And the next thing you know, there's another edict that tightens even further women's access in this instance uh, to university entrance exams. So it's very difficult to know what impact they're having. Is it that the Taliban are digging in to make things worse every time somebody tells them that what they're doing is bad? Or is there some sort of... um, consideration at the top of the Taliban, as they say, and they have to think about how they apply their own uh, principles to policy and and make things easier for people in Afghanistan who are very poor and very hungry. There's a sense then, you, you know, you just mentioned the fact that you have NGOs going into the, into the, uh, the Taliban and saying you need to change. Um, but when you are working on a, at, a, at a state level, there has been some criticism, hasn't there, that, that countries res- having to respond to what the Taliban are doing in Afghanistan are, are lacking a big strategy. Well, there doesn't seem to be any strategy at all, Emma. And getting back to Tom West, the American special representative for Afghanistan, he um, he has uh, not come up with any ideas or strategy in how to deal with the Taliban in terms of making life easier for 40 million Afghan people whose lives have become even more difficult since the Taliban took over 18 months ago. So you're absolutely right. I get the impression that within the American administration itself that different departments are working in different ways and sometimes at loggerheads. And the um, NGOs don't seem to have any idea of how to get around the bans that the Taliban 
keep coming up with. Um, the Taliban, with no consequences, are virtually acting, well, practically acting uh, with impunity, and they just keep tightening the screws. And as they do that, not creating an economy, focusing on uh, pushing women out of public life, things just get worse and worse. And it's a very harsh winter, and very many people are really going through a very difficult time because of the Taliban. And ultimately, given the United States' very difficult relationship with Afghanistan, its withdrawal precipitating the return of the Taliban, how welcome is any move or interference, some might call it, from the US? Well, I think the money is welcome. America has been the, the biggest donor of aid and cash to Afghanistan since the fall of the republic, um, about $2 billion just into Afghanistan itself. Um, that doesn't include the $3.5 billion in uh, foreign reserves they put in the uh, Swiss bank, uh, nor the um, very many billions that they have uh, spent uh, supporting Afghan refugees in the United States that who have gone to the United States. So um, the money is welcome. The Taliban are, are very happy to be gifted um, uh, cash and aid. And they there is evidence that I have seen that they are pilfering that for their own supporters and coffers. Um, so I think, and, and they seem to be stringing the Americans along uh, on what they call counter-terrorism cooperation, saying that they're dealing with the ISIS presence in Afghanistan and uh, doing that with uh, the United States and in order to have a, a, a bilateral uh, cooperative relationship with them. But when it comes to uh, ideology, there's no budging. Lynn O'Donnell, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. The time is 7.33 here in London. Let's have a quick look now at some of the other headlines from today. The US President Joe Biden says he won't send F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine despite renewed calls from Kiev officials for air support. It comes a day after the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz also ruled out sending fighter jets. Ukraine says it needs the jets to take control of its airspace. The International Monetary Fund has warned that out of the G7 nations, the UK's economy will be the only one to shrink in 2023. It's expected to contract by 0.6%. The contraction is down to the UK's high energy prices and financial conditions such as high inflation. Even Russia's economy is now expected to outpace the UK's, growing 1% this year. And Brazil's former president, Jair Bolsonaro, has applied for a six-month U.S. tourist visa. He's been staying in Florida since late December and plans to remain while immigration officials process the visa. Mr. Bolsonaro is currently under investigation in Brazil after rioters stormed key government buildings early this month. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. We'll be looking at those stories in a little uh, more depth in the paper review in a moment. But first, it is 30 years since New Zealand gave itself an astonishing financial target to set inflation at no higher than 2%. At the time, the country had been grappling with two decades of double-digit inflation. Soon enough, though, the 2% inflation target has become the accepted norm amongst global banks. But how useful has it been? Well, Rachel Puppetsoni is a national business reporter and presenter at ABC News. She joins me down the line from Brisbane. Hello, Rachel. Rachel. Hi, Emma. Good to be with you. Um, great to have you. With you. Could you just explain the, the context, the moment 30 years ago when New Zealand said we're going to have 2% inflation and that is that? I mean, it is an astonishing decision to make. 
It surely is. And uh, when you think about the size of New Zealand and where it's positioned in the world and the fact that that decision has had global ramifications since, it is quite remarkable. So as you said in that introduction, um, New Zealand, like much of the rest of the developed world, was very much in a recession kind of um, period. There'd been high volatility throughout the 80s. Interest rates, as you said, were in double digits. Um, Inflation was soaring. Uh, There's a little bit of um, murkiness, I guess, as to how exactly the 2% figure came about. Uh, One article I was reading suggested that it came from just a casual remark by the New Zealand finance minister in the late 80s during a a television interview. But nonetheless, this rate of 2% by the uh, Reserve Bank of New Zealand was set in in 1990. Now, at the time, inflation was 7.6% and it had averaged uh, about 10% uh, since the 1970s. Of course, not everyone thought that that target was uh, realistic, uh, but it did. uh, What followed it was really aggressive monetary policy as well. We saw the interest rate climb to about 15%. And a year afterwards, we saw that inflation target reached of 2%. So it definitely appeared to work. Since then, uh, since that uh, target was introduced, inflation in New Zealand has averaged around 2.2%. So they've stuck to it. And what effect has that had on the on the New Zealand economy? When when we're looking now at the at the world, when inflation is 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 changing rapidly from day to day. That's right. And obviously, uh, it has soaring inflation right now, as much of the, the rest of the world does. Uh, we've seen it you know, reach double digits in part, uh, the UK, for example, uh, above 10%. Uh, so it has not been able to reach that target at all. And none of the other central banks that have subsequently adopted that uh, 2% or thereabouts target since then, uh, including the UK, uh, uh, the US here in Australia, have been anywhere near that. And that's because we've seen these global impacts uh, from COVID and the war in Ukraine, supply chain issues, uh, um, access to um, shipping. These are global impacts that any central bank activity just uh, can't really control. So there's so much discussion now about whether this 2% target is still realistic or whether it perhaps needs to be revised. And it goes to the, leads to the ultimate question, is 2% still a realistic target? I mean, it, it seems such a long way from where we are now. It certainly is. Uh, and if central banks are stuck on on that target, they have quite a lot of work uh, ahead of them. In fact, uh, the US Federal Reserve Vice Chair Lael Brainard uh, said just earlier this month that um, it's it's our number and we're very committed to bringing back inflation to 2%. So there doesn't seem to be any budging uh, there. But I um, read a, a recent um, op-ed by the Nobel Laureate in economics, Joseph Stiglitz, reminding um, us that that 2% figure was essentially pulled from thin air. There's not a real case of why 2% is better than 3%, for example, uh, and, and he's suggesting that uh, there's no difference in, in varying inflation for, from 2 to 4% and he's arguing for a higher inflation target. The, the issue central banks face right now is if they do all of a sudden change that target, there's a potential that they could lose credibility Uh, further credibility with uh, consumers and businesses uh, if they are willing to kind of have this whiplash kind of momentum and be changing the target just because the conditions are different. I suspect we won't see any major change right now, 
But perhaps once central banks and, and uh, economies around the world have moderated and are closer perhaps to that 2% range, the discussion may uh, may really um, take hold of whether 2% is, is the right figure and, and we may potentially see that change in future. Rachel Puppetsoni, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You with The Globalist. in Kiev, 8.39 in Zurich, 7.39 here in London. No, I'm telling a fib, it's now 7.40. Let's go to the newspapers. Uh, Joining me in the studio is Vincent McAvinney, political reporter, regular Monocle 24 voice. Hello, Vinny. Good morning. Good to have you with us. Nice to be here. Um, So let's have a look at the papers. We've been leading in the headlines about the fact that Joe Biden, US president, has said no to F-16s. Yes. This has been widely reported, not least because Poland has said... We're going to send F-16s to Ukraine. Well, that is what the Ukrainians are saying. They are saying that they've had signals. uh, Members of uh, Zelensky's leadership are saying that they've had signals that Poland does want to give them F-16s. Of course, Poland last year did also very early on want to and made efforts uh, to give old Soviet fighters to the Ukrainians so that they could defend the skies. Uh, And now there is talk of giving them the F-16s. The problem with this, though, uh, is then there has to be kind of collective NATO agreement on doing this. There also has to be training provided, which could take around six months. Uh, But I think what's interesting is that the UK's comments on this, uh, the Defence Secretary in the UK has said, well, kind of wryly, well, it's always a no to these requests, but eventually it turns into a yes. So it'll be curious to see whether or not this does start to slide. There's a delegation on the way from Ukraine to Paris uh, to try to get uh, some of their older, I think it's Mirage jets uh, as well. But at the moment, no country willing to kind of break this. I think there's there's concerns, particularly that the jets could be flown over in directly into Russia and used for some kind of bombing campaign. There would have to be strong, strong reassurances that they were just being used for air defence. There is a rather wonderful thing that you have to admire the Ukrainians. At the minute that they get the, the Leopard 2 tanks, they say that's not enough. We want planes now. It's that, okay, we, they're, they're sensing a momentum perhaps by, by Western allies that now that we've got them on board and they have made that huge step, which Russia said the minute you start sending heavy weapons and this, this signals that NATO is involved. And now the Ukrainians are saying, forget this, we need to get rid of Russia. Let's get some proper fighter jets in. Well, I think on on two things, we always have to remember that, you know, whilst the cost of living crisis is hitting many countries around the world as a result, in large part, to this war, the accounts, particularly in newspapers recently, the Sunday Times two weekends ago had an incredible account, and it, it read like something from 1916 of Ukrainians in frozen trenches uh, in the east of the country, having to just mow down Russian conscripts that were being sent over the top, you know, every few hours. Uh, and that's something that we have to f- remember all the time is that, you know, ordinary Ukrainians are really going through an absolute winter of hell. So, of course, they're going to ask constantly for whatever support and help they can get uh, because they know that these weapons 
are sitting around in bases uh, in the West, in NATO countries, uh, and they could be used. They also probably know that people's patience or interest in the war might wane. Now, there is this idea that Russia is going to do some kind of perhaps big spectacular on the uh, on the anniversary of the war next month that they'll try and uh, sort of do some kind of big push or big big sort of missile strike uh, and so they're just wanting to get the ball rolling if they think eventually the west is going to cave on this because ultimately if you've given tanks then why not give planes as well as long as they're restricted to just ukrainian skies uh, but you know they are they are pretty audacious in their requests and i don't think anyone can fault them no once that door is opened You Mm. can't close it again. Um, Let's move to uh, news which is dominating the headlines here in the United Kingdom, at least everything, dare I say, from the Financial Times to even the Daily Mail has noticed that the the IMF has said that the United Kingdom has arguably the worst economic outlook for 2023 of, of of any of the big nations, hasn't uh-huh. it? Yeah, of any dev- <laughs> uh, advanced economies, the UK is ex- uh, expected to do the worst. It's expected to contract by 0.6% in 2023. Uh, this chimes with what the Bank of England is warning of a uh, long but shallow recession uh, that we'll enter into in the next couple of weeks if we're not already in one. The Russian economy, on the other hand, is uh, expected to grow by 0.3% this year after a 2.2% contraction in 2022. So, It is going to be quite remarkable for people sitting in Britain now on the long march to a general election, which could be in, I'd say, about most likely to be in about 15 months time from from this Uh, that, you know, we've taken we've taken all these uh, steps against Russia, we've put in all these sanctions internationally, uh, and yet uh, the UK is faring worse than Russia will be quite remarkable. Um, I think it's a very difficult line that Labour is having to walk at the moment. They are well ahead in the polls in this country when it comes to uh, finally replacing the Conservatives who've been in power since 2010 continuously under various uh, leaders. Uh, but I, I'm curious to see, you know, th- there is real signs now that this is Brexit taking effect, uh, that that is what is putting most of the burden on business, uh, which is holding up supply chains, which is stopping investment coming into this country. Labour is not running on a platform of rejoining Brexit, but it is talking about taking back control, to borrow a phrase, of Brexit. And perhaps we could see a shift, if they do come to power, uh, into sort of more, you know, entering the single market or dynamic alignment. Uh, but they have to kind of keep their plans slightly close to their chest for the next few months. Is there, Are you feeling what I perhaps I'm sensing as well, which is people are getting more brave when it comes to talking about Brexit. There has mm. been, for the last two, three, I think it was the third anniversary since everything came into effect yesterday, it is, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is today. Um, yeah. It's today. And, and, you know, a lot of discussion now about the fact that our shelves are empty. Mm-hmm. Um, there has been a, a, you know, a dearth of people to hire in hospitality, in care, in nursing, Mm. you name it the effects are beginning to properly bite and that people are now able to talk about it in a way that perhaps no one could about even three or four months ago completely and also the people that would stand up and defend it at all costs uh, and would then belittle those who were critiquing it uh, seem to be running a little bit scarce at the moment the online cyber war as well used to be the case where if you even mentioned brexit in a tweet you'd be absolutely deluged by people some of which was bot i think content but some of which was genuine you know it became a bit of a religion for for some people and that seems to have 
gone. Uh, and particularly, you know, if this does ring true, and of course the IMF has been wrong before, but if the UK is 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 dealt this blow that the rest of Europe doesn't have, uh, even with the kind of crippling energy costs at the moment, then I think people will start to wonder, well, does this need to be looked at again? Uh, let's look at uh, Jair Bolsonaro. Um, defeated in the Brazilian presidential elections, was in Florida when mm. um, there was a, a, a Entered storming. on a diplomatic visa earlier this year. And is yeah. now applying for a tourist visa. He is, yes. Like many elderly people, he's trying to stick around in Florida. <laughs> the waiting room for heaven, as some call it. Um, Let yes. me just check how old Jair Bolsonaro is when you're saying that, because I'm not sure how elderly he is, but do carry on. <laughs> well, he does keep claiming health concerns. That was it. He, he sort of mysteriously went into a, a hospital Um He's 67, Vinny. 67. That's not okay. elderly. No, no, it's um, just, that's just a joke about Florida. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah, and, well, but he, ha- he was injured, wasn't he, on the campaign trail? He was injured trail. on the campaign trail, yeah. But no, this is him trying to stay in the US. He's trying to get a six-month visa, tourist visa, and then he might try and claim asylum. He's been spotted walking around a local supermarket, sampling some fried chicken from a stand, uh, and he's apparently wanting this visa to buy time because, of course, there's an investigation on going in Brazil about whether or not he sort of played a part in, directed, coerced the mob to attack uh, in the, a few weeks ago, the uh, Capitol buildings there, which was sort of reminiscent of the uh, January 6th attacks. They went in and ransacked them, uh, and they were said to be his supporters. So there is an investigation as to how much influence or control he had on that. Uh, and if there is something uh, from that, then obviously he might try and apply for some kind of diplomatic asylum, which the Wall Street Journal says the US government has sort of broad powers over. It is interesting, of course, he... uh you know, if he had Donald Trump in the White House, he'd have a much friendlier uh, administration presiding over this, or one actually that would be probably more willing to intervene, whereas I think the Biden administration will want to steer well clear of it and not offer any help or deterrence. Vinnie McVinnie, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle 24. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Let's talk business now with Isabel Hamilton, senior reporter at The Daily Upside. Good morning, Isabel. Good morning. So just explain to us a little bit about what's happening with the Adani Group. Okay, so last week, a short seller called Hindenburg published a report, essentially a journalistic report, accusing Adani of engaging in multiple shady practices, including stock market manipulation, and they took a short position on it. Since then, the stock has been in freefall. Uh, so just explain to us the consequences of this, because it, it's, you know, it, it talks about, you know, talking about short sellers there. So what role should short sellers be playing? Well, that's an interesting question, because the thing is that Hindenburg Research actually has quite a good track record. They managed to sort of sniff out um, fraud at a firm called Nikola, and that was later confirmed by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, but it's obviously difficult because short sellers make their money off other firms stock going down. So is it completely correct that they should be the ones bringing this kind of stuff to light? It's a really interesting question. And how much should politics be brought into this? 
Well, it's not exactly a political question. Adani Enterprises is a really big company. And the thing is that its founder, Adani, does have links to Modi, which who is the Prime Minister of India. But so far, Modi hasn't really chimed in. And I suppose it's a little bit risky for him to tie himself any closer to Adani should things get a little bit, you know, nastier. Um, let's move on to Apple, uh, an enormous company, which... Um, People are now accusing of so-called union busting. Well, yes, yeah, not just people. It's the National Labor Relations Board in America, which is, you know, the agency, government agency that's in charge of enforcing employment laws. And they have found that not only um, communications from the company, including the CEO, were in violation of various union laws there, but also actual company policies, you know, stuff that's built into the fabric. So it's quite a holistic um, thing. Um, just explain to us a little bit about the, you know, how this has all come about, given the fact that I think we've, we're seeing a slight sea change, or rather a large sea change in the US as well, so being precipitated by the unionising of various areas of, of, of Amazon. Um, what effect is this having on enormous companies where the spotlight is very much being focused on the welfare of workers? Well, the Amazon unionization drive absolutely had an effect on Apple workers, specifically the retail workers. A couple of them in the stores in the US have managed to unionize already. And at least one organizer directly cited the Amazon unionization effort as an inspiration. The NLRB findings actually stem from some complaints that were brought by tech workers, you know, not retail workers, um, who also claimed that they were being unfairly uh, punished by the company for things that they said should be protected by union law. Isabel Hamilton, thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle 24. this hour. We continue to pay tribute to the Queen of the Skies, uh, Boeing's magnificent 747, uh, the last being delivered today uh, to be a cargo plane. Nonetheless, it's got some air miles left in it. Uh, to talk to us about that and also about another company that's doing rather well, Barnes & Noble. Uh, let's hear from uh, the author, David Badanis, and regular guest. Hello, David. Hello, hello. Lovely to have you with us. Right, let's talk about um, Boeing 747 and its place. I mean, you are... You, you, you're an academic when it comes to dealing with business and and Boeing's decision to retire it is is a is a huge one isn't it given the fact that it's almost Boeing is kind of slightly identified for for many people of a certain generation by the 747 the 747 was uh, transformative the very first Wright brothers flight in 1903 was less than the wingspan of the 747 <coughs> uh, which was uh, uh, still better than the flights before which were the zero or negative distance it was an incredible thing and it's been around for about Half the almost half the the duration of uh, of uh, powered aviation, which is quite extraordinary. It's also kind of sad. Our top speed of most commercial jets today is pretty much the same as that. So it never beat it. 
it's, it's, you know, it's going on quality. In 1969, 1970, 71, when it was coming out, everybody thought what counted was engineering and what didn't count was women with prams complaining about noise by airports. But they were much more important. They changed high-bypass fan engines, and most of the software in a jet these days isn't in uh, avionics. It's in uh, entertainment. Who knew it would go in that direction? Um, will you miss the 747's production? Excuse me? Will you miss this, the production of the 747? Oh, it was so cute, that little bump. When you go upstairs, there's that hint of elegance until you find out it's the same bloody peanuts and the same plastic bags. <laughs> but there's hope. There's Actually, hope. That, that does bring in that idea that, um, that who was it who, who said that we can fly. We can fly. We are defying gravity. So why do you still get cross about the peanuts? You know, that's the thing about human beings. You know, we're up in the air. We're in these little metal tubes flying over the Himalayas and stuff. And, oh. The, uh, uh, the video's taking 30 seconds to load, or the peanuts aren't right. It's because we have to whine and complain wherever we are, or at least the bodanus is among us. Are we pre-programmed to do that? If you've met my extended family, honey, you would understand. <laughs> I can't wait. Uh, David, let's move on to um, another company that's doing rather well, but in the face of really tough times. Barnes & Noble, uh, the bookstore... Bookstores were hammered and have been for such a long time. We they they survived uh, the introduction of the Kindle. They they survived the demise of the high street. They then went, uh, you know, they got hammered during COVID as well. What is going right for Barnes and Noble? Tell us the story. People love. Uh, there's a couple things inside bookstores. Always there's the chance of serendipity and surprises. People you meet, books that weren't curated for you. The internet can sometimes be a little bit. Uh, certain companies on the internet uh, which resemble large rivers in Brazil. The the internet can be a little bit like those smooth international airports where there's identical shops and a smooth shopping experience and no surprises, nothing... It's it's highly curated. While a bookstore, there can be a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's kind of like uh, why people like to live in Shoreditch in London or uh, maybe Williamsburg in New York City and stuff. You feel there's surprises coming up. So a bookstore has that. The other one is Barnes & Noble has a director of genius, a man named Mr. Daunt from uh, uh, England who went over there. And the first thing he did was say, I have a great idea. How about I stop with the great ideas from headquarters and empower local managers? In particular, in the old days, used to pay money, uh, publish would pay money and they put really crummy books that didn't sell well in the front windows or tables. You go in and it's boring. So Daunt, one of the things Daunt did was that you don't have to do that. You, the local managers, can do things appropriate for your areas. The staff become enthusiastic. They want to help people. It's great. Tell us a little bit of when you're talking about the, the, the sort of curated smooth life that the internet sends us down, down into the path that it sends us down. Um, when it comes to business and also the idea about James Daunt there, um, allowing sort of a, a local touch to be made what what is the, the the importance of the idea of serendipity and creativity when it comes to, to retail and business uh, it's really hard to uh, it's crucial but hard to specify so uh, if I say um, I'm going to produce I don't know a certain number of, uh, of cars at a certain price I can make sure a factory does it but if I say I'm going to cu- uh, have an experience where people will kind of like hanging around with informal streets and a range of shops and relatively low rents and there's no guarantee of what's going to happen, there's no way I can get a a manager to know exactly what's going to happen. He has to trust that people will like that experience. But that's what human beings are like. Um, uh, You know those famous last lines, hmm, let me just stick my head over this, uh, out of this dugout and see what's over there. Humans love to explore. Um, People like to be responsible for the groups under them. So what Daunt was doing is, um, it works on two levels. The managers and the staff are happy, but also people going there, they don't want everything so smooth. You know, sometimes on Netflix, if you're out of your mind and the films they suggest to you 
I really doubt they're just similar to the films you saw before. Um, uh, it's the difference between sexual and asexual reproduction. Rotifers have asexual reproduction. What do you get when you have rotifers together? More rotifers. Exactly the same. However, primates and humans and, and lots of other things, sexual reproduction, where the kids are going to be different in nature. David Badanis, thank you so much as ever for joining me in the studio. And that's all we have time for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Laura Kerima and Christy O'Grady and our studio manager, Adam Heaton, with editing assistance from Steph Chungu. For now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.